Good morning. Good morning. My name is Emily Crabill, and I am a senior social work major. And on behalf of Goshen College's Sexual Violence Awareness Task Force, I welcome you to today's convocation. Goshen College has declared this week Sexual Violence Awareness Week, a week organized by a variety of students, staff, departments, and clubs to bring awareness and action towards sexual violence here on our campus. As, an, as October is National Sexual Violence Awareness Month, we also hope to connect this issue to not only our community, but to our broader national and global context as well. A variety of events have been planned for this week to promote awareness and action, and I will now invite representatives of each event that is planned this week to come up and give a brief description about each event. And then after that, Beth Martin Berkey will introduce our guest speaker. Okay, um, one aspect of this week is the Clothesline Project. Um, and this is a national initiative which started in 1990. But um, it's just an opportunity for people, um, usually women, to write their stories and put it on a t-shirt. So if you have time sometime this week, just go check them out because they're very, very meaningful. Yeah. What's up, guys? My name's Jacob. I'm a second year sophomore uh, major. Whoa. All right. <laughs> All right. I'm a double major in sociology and Spanish. Um, tomorrow night at 9 p.m. in Newcomer 19, there will be a men's summit. And what that is, is a chance for men to discuss the burden we face by society, both as victims and perpetrators. Um, we will have a roundtable discussion, and pizza and drinks will be provided. Uh, once again, tomorrow night at 9 in Newcomer 19. And I uh, hope to see all you guys there. Yeah, it's a male-specific event, sorry. <laughs> I'm Jesse Gottwalls, and I'm a part of Goshen Student Women's Association. On Wednesday, uh, GSWA will host Take Back the Night. Take Back the Night is an event that happens nationwide. We will meet in Newcomer 19 at 8 p.m. for a short time of reflection, followed by a walk on campus to bring awareness to sexual violence and to reclaim spaces that may have felt unsafe to women. This event is open to all female students and faculty. And on Thursday, at 9.45 in Schrock Plaza, we will be having a candlelight vigil, and this is a time of reflection that's more um, contemplative and reflective. Um, right after that, the clothesline project will be taken down, so from Monday until Thursday, you have the opportunity to see that. Um, and then Friday is declared Purple and Teal Day. Purple and Teal are the national colors of Sexual Violence Awareness Week, so we're asking that people show their support by wearing purple and teal, and we'll try to get as many people wearing those colors as possible. And that's our week. Um, and also, after chapel, we have some ribbons, you can see here, and carabiners that are purple and teal that you guys are welcome to come up and get after chapel. And now I introduce Beth Martin Berkey, and she will be introducing our speaker. Thanks. Good morning. My name is Beth Martin Berkey. I teach English and Women's Studies here at Goshen College. Dr. April Ladinsky comes to us from Indiana University South Bend, or IUSB, where she's been a professor of women's studies since 2004. If you listen to public radio, WVPE, chances are you've heard Dr. Ladinsky read her short sort of memoir reflection pieces on Michiana Chronicles, 
In fact, that's how I first met April, indirectly, that is. I had one of those trapped in the car moments when I was home sitting in the garage, but I wanted to stay and listen to the end of this piece on teeth whitening. And it's still online, so I really think you should look it up. Look, her, look up her work online. Dr. Ladinsky studied English before moving into women's studies. She got her BA uh, in English literature at the University of Iowa, and then a master's and PhD in literature at Rutgers University. Dr. Ladinsky has taught writing and literature at Rutgers, Notre Dame, and IUSB. She's published a very popular writing and rhetoric textbook, um, which grew out of her experience teaching composition and directing Notre Dame's university writing program. At IUSB, she teaches a range of women's studies courses from feminist theory and introduction to gender studies to specialized topics like women and sustainability, American girls and popular culture, and ethnic women writers. Beyond our radio relationship, I've learned to know Dr. Ladinsky through the National Women's Studies Association and collaborating her, with her on some of the early uh, years of Michiana Monologues, which is a staged performance of essay reflections written by regional women writers. We hosted a performance of Michiana Monologues here at Goshen several years ago, and some of our professors and students and alumni have been a part of those powerful performances, which raised thousands of dollars for local women's organizations. More recently, um, Dr. Ladinsky has launched, um, with help, has launched the Michiana Manologues, M-A-N, which feature men's stories in a local performance. And if you have any interest in aiding your, adding your story, either as a man or a woman, you can find information online under Michiana Monologues. Um, as we plan to start off this week, we thought about ways to connect to what seems like a very distant problem with our lives here at Goshen College. And I thought of Dr. Ladinsky and her work with popular culture and asked her if she'd help us consider the way our highly sexualized culture shapes the way we see ourselves, the way we have developed attitudes towards sexuality, and our assumptions about sexual violence. Um, if you do want to talk with Dr. Ladinsky after, she will stay for some questions at the end of the convocation time. I'd also like to encourage you to turn off your laptops, your iPads, your iPhones, um, to give your full and respectful attention today's, to today's speaker. Please join me in welcoming Dr. April Ladinsky. Hi there, happy Monday, and uh, great to see everybody here today. Um, so I have about 24 minutes of uh, images and conversation. I hope that what we'll um, do today is uh, raise some questions, make some connections between images that we're really saturated with in this culture and think about the effects of those images, um, and also think about the solutions that we can all uh, uh, we can all work together on. As a college professor, I'm uh, saddled with often bringing very bad news to people, um, but I'm a very optimistic person because I work with students like you who have great ideas, who are interested in collaboration, who are interested in solving problems. So um, I hope we'll move through some difficult territory and end up um, on a pretty positive note. Um, 
So uh, first, uh, as an English major, um, as I am historically, I thought we'd start with definitions. For some of you, this will be a uh, review. For some of you, uh, just a useful reminder that what we'll be talking about in these images is um, uh, not sex, um, not biological categories, but rather gender, really the cultural assumptions that we have about masculinity and femininity. Um, so those are constructed, we come to agree on those, we participate on them, and um, unlike uh, biological categories, which take some work to reinvent, culture is all of us. It isn't out there someplace. We're the ones who participate in these stereotypes. We're the ones who can disrupt them, who can reimagine them. And you're right at the time of your life where you really want to be thinking about, what kind of person do I want to be? How do I want to move around in the world? Uh, what might I be kind of perpetuating without even really thinking about it? Um, so, uh, when we think about these categories, um, we've sort of inherited through, I would argue, about from the last 200 years especially, post-industrial, um, our post-industrial division of labor has given us a um, more and more concretized sense of what it means to be masculine and what it means to be feminine. And so human traits, traits that we all have, uh, get sort of sorted into these two categories that seem to be oppositional. And so when you look at these uh, categories here um, for masculinity and femininity, um, you might say, well, you know, I know lots of women who have traits that are in the masculine category and lots of men who have traits that are in the feminine category. Um, so these, these categories are both kind of invented and yet we all know them. We are very successfully enculturated so that if I handed you a stack of cards, all of you, and said, okay, you've got one minute, go, sort these into categories that we think of as masculine and feminine, you would be able to do it without any trouble at all. We know these, these stereotypes. So, and you'll see that they really operate through oppositions. So, um, for uh, masculinity's expectation for strength, we have feminine weakness. Um, men really rewarded for reason, women uh, more expected to be emotional. Men uh, more rewarded for being competitive, women uh, many expectations that women work cooperatively. Um, so leader, follower, independent, dependent, hard, soft, um, really all of these categories you would be able to, um, you'd be able to sort uh, you'd be able to sort into. Um, really only the last two maybe on the masculinity side we might say are very, very negative. Um, but what we also see about these stereotypes is that they're, they're oppositional but they're unequal. That is, our culture gives greater credence, greater, um, uh, more money uh, to the categories that we place in the masculine, um, in the masculine, uh, in the masculine side of the column there. Um, so again, you might see these as both fictional and yet we enact them, we practice them all the time. So let me give you just a very quick example. How many of you have ever worked out in a weight room before? Lifted weights, so okay. So think about these categories and think about the way men and women work out in a weight room. Um, you know, it's very rare for women to walk into a weight room and say, what I want to do is just get really bulked up. I want to be really big. I want to just look really, really bulky. Um, you know, instead, what do women say? They say, you know, well, I just want, to, just want to firm up. I don't want to get big. I just want to get, you know, sort of sculpted. <laughs> um, uh, so if you think about those, those are ways that biology 
you know, we sort of learn to shape our biology along with these, these columns. So next time you're in a weight room, just look around and watch these categories coming to life. Um, so I want to think um, just quickly uh, about a couple um, effects of assumptions as lesser, not just as opposite of men, but as less than men. Um, uh, so, for example, we often see that it's uh, much easier for women to cross into the male category than into the female category. Much more acceptable culturally for girls to be seen as tomboys than it is for boys to be seen as sissies. Um, and you can hear there's lots of conversation to have here about the way homophobia works uh, to, to police these categories. Um, these categories sort of operate uh, with the assumption of heteronormativity as well. Um, but so here's uh, what are the assumptions of women as lesser. Um, it's not just the way we move around in the world. It has to do with your education. It has to do with how much we get paid. So here is a recent study that ran a couple weeks ago in the New York Times. Um, the effect of uh, science education. We know that there's been a big push to get women into STEM fields, science, uh, medical, technology, research fields. Um, and yet this recent study uh, showed that even science professors at American universities widely re regard female undergraduates as less competent than male students with the same accomplishments and skills. Um, so they're less likely to mentor them. They're less likely to help them get a job. They're less likely to help them pursue their careers. So this has lifelong impact on who's doing science, who's doing research, who's studying cancer. We're losing about half of our population. Um, Here's another uh, two quick examples before we look more at some uh, pop culture images. Um, the wage gap, which you probably know, has still really persisted. Women make about 74 cents for every male dollar. In Indiana, it's 73 cents for every male dollar. That's corrected for education. Um, over a lifetime, that can mean for some women up to $500,000 that they're losing over a career. Think of what that means in terms of investing in your children's future, buying a home, um, retirement, these long-term effects of not being promoted, of not being seen as aggressive enough, as competitive enough, as strong enough, uh, as masculine enough in the categories that we've come to think of as um, as what it means to be a successful human. Um, so percentage of women in Congress, here we are uh, at a um, uh, almost time to, to go into the voting booth here. Um, we'll do a little quiz here. So how many of you think, number one, that the percentage of women in Congress is 45%? Raise your hand. Okay, how about number two, 17%? Okay. <laughs> Half committed there. Um, how about number three, 31%? Okay, interesting. Actually, it's two, the, the worst number possible. 17%, not even 20%. 17%. Uh, when did women get the right to vote? 19? 20, 1920, the 19th Amendment in 1920. All these years later, women are only 19, are only 17% of the US Congress. So that's likely to tip after this election, but something to really think about. Um, we don't have very many female candidates to vote for in Indiana because they're not running for all sorts of reasons that I could teach you about for a whole semester, but not this morning. Um, <laughs> so, 
Um, we do have maybe some exceptions. Uh, Hillary Clinton maybe has broken, <laughs> broken the barrier. She may arguably be sort of the exception that proves the rule, though. There are very few women who are rewarded for being really, really strong. And you probably know if you followed her career that she was also punished um, at great length for being too masculine, being seen as too aggressive. Um, and now this wonderful meme, um, she seems to be controlling the world through her uh, smartphone. I had to include this latest one. Um, thank God, someone's looking out after Big Bird. So, um, but of course, there's there's one Hillary Clinton. Um, what we see far more often is this kind of image. Um, these images of women in popular culture that saturate us absolutely everywhere. Um, so as we look at the images for the next uh, few minutes here, I'd like you to practice uh, what Jean Kilborn and other media scholars have called the reversal test, which is when you look at these images, try to imagine men in the position of women um, and think about how would these images look different? Would it seem absurd? Would it seem laughable or just weird to have male bodies where you see female bodies and vice versa? And if that is the case, think about why it is that this seems sort of normal, that you can flip around in any magazine, um, that you can get at any grocery store and see versions of these images over and over and over again. Think about, um, would you want yourself to be in this image? Would you want to have a bag over your head? Would you want your sister to have a bag over her head? Or your mother? Or the woman sitting next to you right now? Um, what is happening with these images where, as we see here, um, women's bodies are on display and their heads, the thinking part, the speaking part, the dangerous part, right? Um, the full citizen part. Uh, covered up, removed, suffocated in these images over and over. What is so dangerous about women speaking, women thinking in these images? It's something we're thinking about. So um, while we're all probably pretty familiar with um, you know, the idea that advertising is toxic, I think it's not really enough to sort of say, well, yeah, yeah, you know, women are used sexually, sex sells, we see this stuff all the time, it's just advertising. Um, I'd like to invite you as college students who are really honing your critical thinking skills to think about what is happening in these images. What's going on? How can you discern the different kinds of arguments that are being made? Um, so for the next five slides, I'm going to show you something that I drew from Ms. Magazine's blog. How many of you have ever read Ms. Magazine? Oh my gosh, that should be everybody. Look at this awesome Wonder Woman is on the cover. Come on. So the, the 40th anniversary issue is out. Um, and they have a great track record of inviting people to think about uh, poisonous uh, advertisements and not simply to complain about it, but to do something about it. So they have, um, and you can look at my copy afterwards if you like, they have something that they have uh, run for the last 40 years, a no comment page in the back where anybody, anybody sitting in this audience could send in an advertisement that you think is offensive. And what they will do is post it along with the address, the name and address of the um, of the corporation that is producing these so that you can write to them and complain. And they have a fantastic track record of pulling, <laughs> pulling advertisements. Um, so a uh, great sort of reminder of how to be active. So 
the Ms. Magazine blog suggests uh, about five, I'm going to introduce you to sort of five things that you can look for that help you say more than simply, well, okay, these images are bad. So you might ask, um, does an image show only parts of a sexualized person's body? So you can see, again, the theme of the headless woman continues. This could be anybody. Um, these images really normalize the idea that women uh, are less important than men, that they're interchangeable. This could be anybody. Um, and somebody is uh, meant to perform a sort of action on her. Um, so uh, in many images, we see that the sexualized person is a stand-in for an object. So in this case, a sort of crude reference to breasts becomes the same as a, um, I don't know if that's beer or soda pop, I don't know. Um, uh, well, I don't know. <laughs> don't drink it, whatever it is. <laughs> Um, so again, headless woman, doesn't matter who she is, she's a body for selling whatever drink it is. I guess it's a very bad advertisement if I can't tell <laughs> what it is that I'm supposed to be drinking here. Um, so uh, not only is the person being objectified, but we're seeing just a part of the body as well. Uh, it makes it much easier to enact violence on a person when you imagine the person as an object, when you, when you imagine a person as less than fully human, as less than yourself. That person cannot speak back. Um, so another theme is, um, you know, do images show sexualized people as interchangeable? Again, more breasts with no heads, right? This sort of um, seems to be the fantasy of the people making these ads, and we're buying these ads. The reason these ads run is because people like you and I buy these magazines. Um, so your, here's your dollars at work. Um, if we do the reversal here, can we, can we imagine an ad that shows just a, a stream of naked male torsos, doesn't matter who they belong to, the head doesn't matter, being able to speak or, or inter, you know, have an exchange with this person doesn't matter, merely bodies um, for the consumption of, uh, of others. So sexual objectification often takes the form of violence, which is why uh, we're really having this conversation this week. Um, this is a, an extreme image, but I would argue that a lot of advertising features this kind of theme. Um, a woman as unconscious. Here she has her head, but she's strangled or drugged or um, who knows what. Um, but here we see this image being used to advertise a man's tie. Um, why is it okay for, for uh, us to um, see this kind of image? The man is looking right back at us. He's not hiding. The woman is unconscious. Um, this looks like you know, a potential rape scene. You can imagine uh, what might have led up to this. What are we supposed to imagine comes next? Would you want to be the person on the hood of that car? Would you want to see your sister there or your mother? Um, Imagine the reversal. You almost can't imagine the reversal. A woman holding a strangled, uh, a tie around the neck of a seemingly strangled or drugged man, um, drug over the top of the car in his underwear. What would we imagine was going to happen? What would we think of her if she were looking back at us in this way? Um, it's a grotesque image, and yet it's really of a piece of lots of advertising we see. So the fifth one that Ms. Magazine asks us to think about is, does the image suggest that sexual availability is the defining characteristic of a person? Um, so look at her face. Here's someone whose face we see, um, I don't know how you describe her expression. She looks afraid to me. Um, 
if this is American apparel, what kind of America are we selling in this kind of image? Um, would you want to be at that photo shoot? Would you want to open a magazine and see yourself or your sister or your mother or the person sitting next to you in that kind of image? Um, and yet, you know, we see these uh, images at the mall. We see them on posters that children are walking by. Uh, we come to see this as normal. Try the reversal image, reversal practice in this one. Can you imagine a man um, in this position? Would we think it was funny or just weird? Why is it that we think of this as sexy, as something that sells? So I'm asking you to take advertising seriously, to really think about it, and to think as scholars about the argument that it makes about how we're supposed to see women, how we're supposed to see men, and how we're supposed to see relationships. What you see in these images over and over um, is sex as the relationship. Um, and I don't care how great your sex life is one day, you will always have much more time having relationships than you will having sex. I hope I can say that in the chapel. Um, <laughs> um, you know, most of our life is having relationships, and yet we hardly ever see meaningful relationships depicted in images. Um, so one more, this ad uh, was so offensive that it got a lot of attention, and yet I would argue, again, of a piece of lots of other advertising we see. Would you want to be the woman in this ad? Um, you know, her face makes it look like this is a sort of sexy scene, but her hand is being held down. Look at how uncomfortable she is. Look at how menacing the other figures are. Can you imagine this in reverse? A man being held down while women sort of leering, lean over that man. What would we imagine is about to happen? What do we imagine is about to happen here? And how is this a way of selling Dolce & Gabbana? So I show you this image because it's not an advertising image and it's a very iconic image. Uh, this is D-Day, you know, um, uh, Times Square, this image that have, we've come to see as a romantic kiss between two strangers, a sailor grabbing a, um, a nurse in Times Square and giving her a kiss. But this was sort of uh, in the news again this week as people have been re-looking at this image Think of it in relationship to the other images that you've seen. Look at the way she's being bent back, um, the way he's grabbing her, the way she's sort of pulling down her skirt that's getting sort of, um, you know, as though she's being exposed here. Um, I think it's worth thinking about why we think of this as an iconic romantic image um, when uh, you can also see it as a kind of aggression. I wouldn't want to be bent back like that. Um, Imagine this in reverse. Can you imagine a woman bending a guy back like this, having him sort of off balance? Worth thinking about. So um, you can talk about that later. <laughs> um, okay, so now I have a pop culture test. Who are these people? The Avengers. How many people saw The Avengers this summer? Yay. How many people saw it multiple times? Okay, my teenage daughters. <laughs> Uh, we, had, we had long conversations this summer about whether there was equal opportunity um, display of bodies in this. Um, but notice the poses here. Now that we've looked at these other images, look at uh, the male Avengers looking straight out at the camera. The one Avenger who's not looking at the camera is who? Black Widow. So looking off in the distance somewhere. Now is Black Widow a powerful character in this film? Absolutely, right? She's got awesome kicks, all that stuff. Um, but here, you know, she's the person who I would guess is least comfortable in this image. Um, why is she only the only one not looking back? 
So a comic uh, book artist did the reversal test um, and um, tried to imagine this image in reverse. And some of you may have seen this meme, but you're going to have to watch your eyes. Are you ready? This is what the Avengers would look like if men were posed as women and vice versa. I'm so sorry. <laughs> So why is this funny? We see images of women pose from behind all the time. And of course, it's OK to laugh, right? It's, but, um, but these images of sort of booty shots, we see this all the time. It seems absurd. It seems goofy. It seems ridiculous when we see it for men. And yet, we're accustomed to seeing it for women. So I want you to sort of take that energy of surprise and think about what are we saying about whose bodies we expect to be vulnerable? Um, what are we saying about whose bodies we expect to be powerful? Who can, who can uh, stand up for themselves? Who can look back at the opposition? Um, not people who are turned away, who are bent over who are in positions of vulnerability. Um, so uh, scholars call that sort of, um, uh, this positioning of women, uh, porn culture, or the pornification of the everyday. That is, that these images drawn from pornography, whether or not you're a consumer of it, and we know that many, many people are, um, whether or not you're a consumer of porn, these images absolutely saturate us. So sexualized violence, placing women um, in positions of vulnerability as though it's erotic, as though no always means yes, as though women want to be not just, um, not just always to have sex, but to have it in sort of violent ways that have nothing to do with their own pleasure. That's what people talk about when they um, uh, talk about the pornification of the everyday. So just a reminder, the porn industry is a huge industry, $97 billion a year. So the porn industry brings in more money than all of those, all of those corporations together. Um, the other thing that I think is worth thinking about about porn is that it really is everywhere. I don't have to tell you this, but you almost have to fight to keep it from popping up on your screen sometimes, which I discovered when I became a Girl Scout leader and started um, in my office at school, you know, surfing around looking for girls, you know, for like Girl Scout crafts, and I would type in girls, you know, guess, guess what comes up on my screen? I'm madly shutting down all of these, these pop-ups. But it gave me a real um, appreciation for how actively we have to fight being part of porn culture. It's there whether or not we want it to be. Um, some recent studies have shown that boys typically get exposed to porn at about the age of 12. For girls, it's more like age 16. But if you think about 12 being exposed to these images over and over and over, um, images of very aggressive men, images of very passive women, women seem to, seeming to enjoy being violated, uh, being in pain, being there to serve others. If you learn that at 12 and 13, pornography really is the new sex ed for boys. Um, it has profound effect on relationships. And my guess is, I won't make people raise their hands, but my guess is that everyone in this room knows somebody who has a relationship who has been negative, that has been negatively affected by porn. I mean, I certainly do. When I talk to therapists in town um, and ask them sort of, you know, what kinds of narratives they hope will come up in the Michiana monologues, that's the number one thing they tell me. I hope someone will write about the effect of pornography. These images saturate us. They affect how we behave in the bedroom, how we interact with one another, how we feel about our bodies, how we move around in the world. Um, so that's all I'm going to, to 
say really um, about that except that we can, you know, here's what I would argue is a sort of uh, effect of porn culture um, in regular advertising, these kinds of images. Um, I live in South Bend and um, Last Christmas, uh, I was walking uh, down our mall, the Sephora store is right next to Build-A-Bear, and our Sephora store had a huge, that's makeup, you know, had a huge window with an image just like that Clinique image uh, of a woman with a sort of splash of um, lotion, I guess, on her face, um, right next to all these kids who are lining up to Build-A-Bear. Would you want to be that woman? Would you want your sister to be that woman? What are we supposed to think about an image like that? Is that woman going to speak back? Is she going to run for president? Um, these images do work on us whether or not we want them to. Um, so I'm going to just remind us of a couple um, statistics here, and then I'm going to show you a clip of about a, um, a five-minute clip of a film here. You probably know these images, uh, know some of these numbers. What are the effect of these images? One out of four women will be sexually assaulted on college campuses. One out of eight women raped while in college, um, mostly by people we know, people we're in relationships with. Um, so. This more surprising statistics maybe, 60% of male college students indicated some likelihood of raping or using force in certain circumstances. If you are conditioned to see those kinds of images as normal, uh, to see sexual interchange as something where as a man you are supposed to be aggressive, you're expected to be aggressive, um, this is the effect. And of course we know that alcohol is, um, uh, is a key part of lots of this. So what can we do? The usual approach is to teach women, don't get raped. Be really careful. You see these lists everywhere. Um, walk around carefully. Carry your keys like this. Um, you know, make sure that you don't drink. Make sure that you don't dress provocatively. We usually focus on women um, as though women are the problem. And of course, we know that men are also sexually assaulted. Um, and men are the victims of domestic violence as well. But the numbers weigh very heavily uh, in favor of women being victimized. So this uh, circulated a couple years ago and got some uh, both positive and very negative responses where the reversal tip was tried for um, you know, how not to get raped. What would happen in our culture if instead of teaching girls don't get raped, we said to boys, don't rape. That's what this list is, and you can find it um, if you look up rape prevention tips. You know, here's a tip. Don't put drugs in women's drinks. Um, when you see a woman walking by herself, leave her alone. Uh, they go on and on. Uh, remember not to rape her when you're around a, a, a woman. So it's both funny and not, right? Um, which is part of the point of this kind of list, and I didn't circulate it. Um, but I think it's worth having a conversation about, and I can see that people want to. Um, you know, is this a successful learning tool? I had some students put it up on campus, and some people thought it was really powerful because it really shifted um, the attention to, um, to how do we solve this problem. You can't simply tell half the population, try not to get raped. It's going to take all of us. There were lots of people who also took offense because it made it seem as though all men are rapists, as though all men are um, likely perpetrators. But that's what the culture is telling us. Um, that is, in fact, what these, uh, these images teach boys. We assume that you're going 
going to assault women. I think that's an insult to men. It's an insult to our brothers, to our fathers, to the people we know and love. And so, um, you know, that might be uh, something to talk about in classes. All right, my time is tight here, so I want to show uh, five minutes of a film called The Bro Code, uh, a fairly new film um, that really focuses on how can men be part of the solution? How can we reimagine masculinity, just as feminists have been reimagining femininity for the last um, 200 years? So this is going to sort of start abruptly. What you'll see is a quick reminder of damaging stereotypes for men and women. There's a couple clips of a commercial. And then you'll see some talking heads, uh, primarily Michael Kimmel, who is one of the top scholars on masculinity. So, and also you'll hear from Shira Tarrant, whose book, Men and Feminism, is a fantastic book. So it's about a four and a half minute clip. Okay. Um, so if you haven't yet read Michael Kimmel, uh, he's somebody to really um, look up. So I just have a, a minute here. I just want to remind us that um, here's some real optimism. That is, um, that there's Michael Kimmel again, uh, the, guide, the Guy's Guide to Feminism. There's lots of books out right now that are helping to sort of move this along. We can't reimagine half the world without reimagining the other half. Um, so there's lots and lots of organizations that are really focusing on men as part of the solution. Um, my campus is actually involved in a consent campaign with posters like this that really get people to think about um, what relationships look like. Um, so recasting the idea of strength here. Um, there's lots and lots of these posters that might find a home on Goshen College campus, for example. Uh, men that look different from the images that we've seen. And I'm not going to show this right now, but you might just jot down the, um, that uh, little title, One is Too Many. It's part of a video campaign, and there's one with Biden and Obama um, and some other um, members of the cabinet speaking out about the importance of reimagining um, uh, male violence and a reminder of how often men are damaged by seeing battering relationships as they were growing up. Um, so we need more of these kinds of images. When we brought the Michiana monologues here, there was a beautiful big banner uh, that um, Beth Berkey and Carol Jarvis helped sort of put together. Lots and lots of Goshen men's hands on a banner that says, these hands don't hurt. So I wanted to end with the 19th century because that's where I do my research and that's where I think lots of these, um, uh, these narratives that are really damaging to men, they're damaging to women, have begun. And to remind us that in 1848, the very first uh, women's study uh, or women's um, convention in the US in Seneca Falls, New York, was Lucretia Mott who spoke at the end of the two days of convention. She was a Quaker, peace lover, uh, would have been very at home on the Goshen College campus, who knew that it wasn't up to women to change the world. It was up to everybody. So the final resolution is resolved that the speedy success of our cause depends on the zealous and untiring efforts of both men and women for the overthrow of the monopoly of the pulpit, for the securing to women an equal participation with men in various trades, professions, and commerce. And I would say that applies today as well. Thank you very much for your attention today. Thank you very much, April. We have a lot of these resources on campus, in the library, a lot of different videos, so there are a lot of places where you can find further information about this. If you want to stay and talk with April, you're welcome to stay here for a while. There's also the ribbons and other things, the carabiners, if you want to pick those up as well. Have a good week. <laughs>